I don't think we should ever blame anyone for struggling with their weight. I think we are all dealing with a society full of triggers, which makes it incredibly hard not to gain weight. It's almost contrary to our biology, in fact, because we're pre-programmed to want to eat. But it's quite interesting we talk about that acceptance. Have we glamorized obesity? Hello and welcome to Two Women Chatting. I'm Michelle. And I'm Liz. And today we are shocked, shocked, I tell you. (laughs) Shocked about the obesity data that's just come out from the NHS, where we have doubled how many people are obese in the UK. It used to be, oh God, 617,000 back in 2016-17. We are now up to 1.2 million um, hospitalizations where obesity was a factor. And it's saying that two thirds of all adults are now fat compared to about half in the mid 90s. Liz, what the heck? No, it's not all me. <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know me, I, I, I could go on forever about this. I, I, I just feel we've got to do something about it. It is a crisis. And you know what? It's being described as the next pandemic. Yeah. Because obesity can so often lead to, lead to uh, diabetes. It's, it's well, scary. Well, yeah, the problem with, you know, our lives, I mean, certainly in, in the Western world, we have a completely different lifestyle to 50 years ago. Mm. And that's not just the, you know, walking to school and all that stuff. There are so many lights out there that aren't natural. It affects our sleep. So we don't sleep well. And apparently sleep, lack of sleep, causes weight weight gain. And if you're a midlife woman and you're going through peri or menopause, chances are you're getting really crappy sleep. Exactly. So I, I would say that's one of the reasons that people do put weight on during menopause without realising it. Um, well, that's self-fulfilling as well because you feel really crappy. You don't get enough sleep. You yeah. eat a bit more, your hormones are all over the place, and it just sticks like flipping glue. Oh, it does, It's yeah. so much harder to lose weight in midlife. It does, but that also makes sense. I, remember, I always used to think, gosh, you go into hospital sometimes and you see quite a lot, lot of large nurses. And I used to think, oh, why? But their sleep pattern is completely destroyed. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't read up on that. I didn't just make it up. <laughs> No, no, I'm sure. But there's the other environment, like the chemicals that we're exposed to, so many chemicals, they affect us as well. Well, look at all the highly processed foods. Uh, what are they? They're called ultra high processed, aren't mm. they? Mm. And that seems to be a go to. Sometimes when we don't even realise all the sauces and the and the ready meals that we buy, there's so much stuff in there that your body shouldn't really be having. You know, we're we're trying to digest and deal with foreign chemicals in our body and I don't think we're going to see the results of this for another generation honestly no it, it is it just frightens me it yeah. really does well mm. I know someone you do and so do you I do now yeah <laughs> who is an expert in this field and I feel that we should put some of these stats to her and see what Jane who is the founder of Jane Plan has to say because um, she has worked in weight loss for years including at a London hospital And I would imagine she's probably as shocked as we are. So we're so delighted to have Jane join us today. She is the Jane of Jane Plan that she started from her kitchen table 14 years ago, which has now grown to become the UK's leading healthy eating delivery company. 35 million meals, 100,000 Jane planners and hundreds of thousands of healthier people later, she is the instantly recognisable face behind the brand. She started out working with stars like Delia Smith, Rick Stein and Gary Rhodes. And then, post-children like so many of us, she reinvented her career, retraining in nutrition. 
and then running weight loss programs at a leading London hospital. Jane has been my personal mentor on my weight loss journey, and I just really wanted to share her with our listeners. She's known for her sensible advice and realistic attitude to weight loss, and that has really helped me enormously, and I've now shed nine kilos. Yay me. So welcome, Jane. Oh, thank you. That's such a great introduction. Nine kilos as well. I think you kept that one a bit quiet. That's an incredible loss. Well Well, done. (laughs) Not easy over Christmas, but the tips that you gave me and that we've shared on our uh, midlife library have really, it Mm. really helped. But let's just dive in straight away. We wanted to start with some really shocking facts that have recently emerged. So the NHS is being forced to deal with 3,000 admissions related to obesity every day. That's twice as many as it was six years ago. Well, I'm the internet ferret of the two of us, uh, and I've discovered that the um, NHS digital data for England shows there are a record of 1.2 million hospitalisations where obesity was a factor in 22 and 23, which is double the amount in 2016-17. And in fact, two thirds of all adults are now fat compared to just half in the mid 90s. So basically of those quarter of obese. It's disgraceful. It's just just shocking. It is. The statistics are Um, shocking. But the cost is what's so shocking to me. And and the cost is apparently to the NHS is 19.2 billion. Although the estimate they think could be five times higher. Mm. What is going on? Well, I think it's been described as well as potentially our next pandemic. And as you've run weight loss programmes in a major London hospital, how do you react to that, Jane? Where are we going to start tackling this crisis? It's really interesting, isn't it? Because this hasn't just happened overnight. I mean, being overweight or being obese has been uh, symptomatic of the of the UK population for many, many years. But I think what's happened is it's sort of been off the agenda. Uh, either our attentions have been elsewhere or we're just too scared to talk about it because it's it's not very PC, is it, to talk about being fat, being overweight, being obese. In fact, the, the very word obese can really make our sort of you know, fingers and tails crawl a little bit. It's a sort of, um, it's a very unpleasant term. But the reality is it's a massive problem. O- obesity is the UK's second biggest killer. It's the second largest cause of cancer. Uh, and these are, these are facts that people don't like to hear um, because we are all meant to feel great about ourselves. We're meant to be body positive. We're meant to accept ourselves and love ourselves for what we are, which, by the way, we should love ourselves. Of course mm-hmm. we should. But what we need to do is disentangle the weight argument away from appearance and put it firmly back on the health agenda. Um, And I'm kind of hoping that these very shocking figures are actually going to help do that. Um, But I don't know. I don't know if it will. There's so much much sort of chat out there on Instagram and and even Mm. all our advertising. You only have to drive down the M4 to see a few lots of billboards where fundamentally the people being used in general advertising, who are, of course, meant to reflect the general population, are overweight and sometimes obese and because we all accept that's what we look like nowadays. Mm. Well, what defines obesity? People bandy around words like, or acronyms like BMI. What exactly is that and why is it important? So BMI, body mass index, is a, uh, a scale which is used to determine potential health outcomes and it takes our weight and it looks at the relationship between our weight and our height, basically. Um, 
I think the BMI scale is absolutely relevant, although a lot of people say it's no longer relevant. And they fall back on arguments. Oh, it was vented hundreds of years ago. Well, so were many, many things. Um, That doesn't mean it's not relevant. The BMI scale basically works on a numbers thing. So if your BMI is between 18.5 and 24.9, you are considered to be a healthy weight. If it's 25 to 29, Uh, You are overweight. And if you're 30 above, you are obese. But the reality is it doesn't take that much to put you in the obese category to have you if your BMI is over 30. And it's hazarding a guess here, but you're a probably classic MS size 16, maybe maybe a little bit bigger. But you're not, I think when people think of the term obese, they think of someone who is really extraordinarily large, but actually it's it's a high percentage of the British population, and we're just very used to seeing it. We've normalised it, I think. Mm. And how does that affect health then, if you're obese? Because that isn't that many points. Yeah, five points over on the BMI scale is nothing really that puts you in the obese scale. I didn't know that. So, but that your health is going to be seriously affected. Yeah, absolutely. Everything from um, joint pain, uh, stress on our joints backache, much more serious things like chronic diseases like uh, type 2 diabetes. A number of cancers are associated with obesity, Um, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, uh, all of these things, uh, elevated blood pressure, uh, high cholesterol, uh, difficulties conceiving, uh, additional problems around the menopause years. All of these are associated with obesity and being overweight actually as well. So do you think people are taking enough personal responsibility or are they, oh, no, you know, everyone's like a size 16 or a size 14. And do we just allow ourselves to get fat? I know I'm, I don't want to get in trouble here, but it's true. Are we allowing ourselves? Are we giving ourselves permission to be fat or obese or over our BMI um, targets because everybody else is around us and it's easier to say yeah I can't shift the weight it's my hormones or it's just too difficult oh are we being lazy about fat I think it's very easy when it comes to being overweight or obese or or fat um to play to feel there's a certain amount of blame associated with it and I don't think that's that's right. I think we are living in what's known as an obesogenic society. In other words, we are surrounded, we're pounded by, in fact, um, triggers. So you walk down the high street, you've got Starbucks, you've got a sort of 300 calorie cappuccino, and then there's lots of lovely chocolate muffins when you go in there. Then the next shop up is a a pizza takeaway. Um, You go onto Instagram, you've got food pornography. Food is everywhere. But as human beings, we're not really designed like that. You know, evolution hasn't caught up with our economic circumstances, if you like. Our bodies Mm. still think we're hunter gatherers. Our bodies still think the next famine is just around the corner. So we are programmed to want to eat. And we are also programmed to be attracted to high energy foods like sugary foods, fatty foods. Uh, our bodies think, oh, yes, I must have that because I'm actually a hunter gatherer. I'm actually a caveman. I might, I might not eat for the next three days. Now, in the 21st century, of course, that in the Western world, that's not the case. We, we, food is available 24 seven. And so because we're pre-programmed to want to eat, it's, we are in effect playing a sort of, a say, a say no game the whole time to actually control how much we eat. 
I don't think we should ever blame anyone for struggling with their weight. Um, I think we are all dealing with a society full of triggers, which makes it incredibly hard uh, not to gain weight. It's almost contrary to our biology, in fact, because we are, as I say, we're pre-programmed to want to eat. Um, But it's quite interesting we talk about that acceptance thing. Have we glamorized obesity? I've seen some arguments around that. Have we accepted it? I think we probably have, is the truth. Um, but I don't think that's that's different to actually saying, oh, well, it's your fault. You've been a bit lazy about it. You should have gone to the gym. You shouldn't have had that chocolate muffin. You shouldn't have had that third glass of wine. I don't think we should play the blame game at all. I think we need to support people. Uh, we need to continue with education um, and we need to give people the right tools to actually to be able to help them manage their own weight so they can be a healthier version of themselves. I think what you just said there about education, because if we're accepting at this stage in 2024 that it's OK to be excise, then what's going to happen with the kids when they're going to put on more weight and more? And, and it's, it's going to be a never ending circle. Mm, mm. You know, we have to do something. And the education schools is where I think it's got to start. I think it has got to start with education. What I would say is, and this is coming from years of experience work with people uh, who've been extremely overweight in the obese category, working in a hospital in bariatrics, which is gastric banding, gastric bypass, uh, right down to, you know, people who say, oh, I just like to lose weight for my wedding dress. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. We do have a lot of education already. It's all there. And I think we all know probably the sort of foods we should be eating. I think we don't know how much we should be eating. I think there's a huge distortion around portions now. Uh, your average supermarket ready meal um, is considerably bigger now than it was even 10 years ago. I used to have that percentage at my fingertips. I've forgotten what the percentage is, but I think it's about 15, 20% bigger. We don't understand how much we should be eating. Um, I think we are very prone to fads. Oh, I must eat more protein. That will help me. Oh, I should definitely have blueberries. That will help me. Fundamentally, we are eating too much as a nation. uh, And we're not eating always the right foods. But you can eat all the right foods in very large quantities and you would still be overweight. So it's two things. It's eating the right foods, but it's also understanding how much we should be eating as well that really changed for me when I was on the Jane plan because well I still am but just getting used to smaller portions at first yeah I'm feeling a little hungry and I'm adding more vegetables but it is surprising how quickly Mm. your stomach shifts you may not see it all together on the outside there may still be like in a band of visceral fat and so on but your stomach reacts really quickly and same for my husband and he's used to eating considerably larger quantities than me but just mentally having that portion size it's really not hard to get used to and that now I find that if I eat more than that portion of food, portion of food I feel so full to the point of uncomfortableness that I just don't do it anymore it's almost like I've got a mental gastric band or or maybe I'm listening to my stomach a bit more maybe I'm just taking it slower and reacting to to the reality of when it's full as opposed to keep pushing it's through. Well, well, if it's on your plate, it's, you'll eat it. That That's what is it's generational. It, I think, yeah, probably. It's post-war. I was always told to clear my oh, plate. Oh, gosh, yeah, and you wouldn't have dessert till you finished your... Yeah, yeah. clean your plate, that sort of mm. messaging. I think also, I mean, you've talked to yourself, Michelle, about um, 
not feeling as hungry or got used to smaller portions. But it's also habit, isn't it? If you're in the habit of having um, four potatoes with your, your, your Sunday lunch, you'll always have four potatoes. But if you can form a new habit where you only have two potatoes, um, it's making those small changes can make a huge difference. And it's also about being consistent as well. Because um, I think what a lot of us do is we we're conscious that, well, well, I'd like to manage my weight or, well, we don't, we, we've been scared, haven't we? We've been scared about saying, I want to lose weight because we're told we're not allowed to say that anymore as women or as men. We're told, oh no, you'd be happy with yourself, love yourself, be body positive. So we say things like, oh, I'd like to eat a little bit more healthily. Um, but really what we mean is I'd like to lose a little bit of weight. But somehow societies, we're not allowed to say that now. I don't know why we're not allowed to say it. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, we're, we're midlife women. We should be able to say and do what we want with our bodies. So I remember years ago, you know, you'd be looking in the mirror and go, oh, does my bum look big in this? Yes. <laughs> you never hear anyone saying that. And I think we should be allowed to say it. Um, so I think we need to bring fat back onto the agenda is the yeah. truth. And I think we need to stop pussyfooting around the issue and saying, oh, what's on to eat a bit more healthily, but actually say, am I a healthy weight? Could I be a healthier weight? Um and have a, a more radical approach is the truth. And then I guess it's how you get to that. How mm. do you do it? I think we need to be a bit more honest, as you say. Mm. So, so a reality check on fat, really, and the way it affects yeah. our bodies. But there'll be lots of people, and now it's government endorsed as well, who look for perhaps a shortcut. And I'm talking really about Wigovian Azempic. And yeah. um, it's been in the press quite a lot. Sharon Osborne has had a remarkable loss. Um, she's lost 41 pounds and is now trying to put on weight. She's now under yes. 100 pounds, which is 45 kilos. I think that's my right yeah. leg, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and people like Oprah. Probably most people's right, right legs. Well, yeah, my, I'm gonna, my big thing about Oprah, what she, what she said... And I'm not going to go into all of it, but I'm, I'm shocked that she said, literally, she said, I've got two weeks of solid eating, so I'm going to put on weight, so I need to, to you know, have, a, have an injection or whatever. You don't need to, to mm. eat for two solid weeks because of Thanksgiving. It's, I mean, I'm sorry, that's wrong. It's completely yeah. wrong. Same as Christmas. You do not need to eat solidly for eight days. No. no. So, Jane, what are your thoughts on these um, government-endorsed injections, which you don't just take for a short time, you know, you need to to be considering the long-term effects of taking on medication like this and some of the downsides as well. Um, but yeah. where do you stand on that in, in conjunction with perhaps a weight loss programme? Well, I feel, I mean, I think we can all agree that fundamentally the diet industry has failed the nation because otherwise we would not be in the state we're in today. And we do need to think very hard about what the best approach to managing the obesity crisis is. And it is a crisis. I believe that there are a lot of people who, with the extra support of the GLP-1s, the Wagovi in particular, Zempix currently only licensed for people with type 2 diabetes in the UK, I think that support is an important thing. Um, however, it should only be accompanied by significant lifestyle changes. And I'm really talking about eating changes. I'm talking about movement changes too, but more eating changes. Weight loss is 80% about diet and 20% about exercise. Um, so I think there is a place for them, but I think they need to be very carefully managed. They definitely should not be seen as the miracle, the, the Oprah Winfrey approach, if you like. I'm going to eat for two weeks, so I'm going to have a couple of jabs. Definitely not. Um, 
And I feel like we need to understand the place that they sit in. They're there to support weight loss and they will make it easier um, based on all the evidence so far. But of course, it's a bit like when you have a backache, isn't it? If you've got a backache and you take a Nurofen, your backache will go. But if you don't adjust your posture, maybe lose some weight, maybe do Pilates, maybe change your, your mouse on your computer, when you stop taking the Nurofen, your backache is going to come back. It's the same with the weight loss injections. You've got to do all the other stuff. You've got to reduce the amount you eat. You've got to eat more healthy foods. Um, you've got to move a little bit more. Otherwise, when you stop taking the injections, fundamentally, the weight will come back. So it's about changing your lifestyle with the support of the injections. But the injections, do they suppress your weight? Uh, your appetite, is that what they do? Yeah, so they they, they exactly how they work. They work by basically taking away hunger. Um, and I think the reason they've become so popular, of course, is people like the Kardashians were using them, you know, to slim down for the Oscars or whatever it was, or the netball or something like that. Um, and I never, it's never good if a sort of drug is led by a sort of celebrity cause. It's always something that we should take extremely seriously. Um, so I don't think they should be seen as the, a miracle drug. I think they should be seen as a support for people with obesity to get them to a healthier place. Okay. Well, can we talk about government help and government intervention a bit more? Um, so when we were researching this, Liz and I were, can't, couldn't quite believe that so in two Asian countries, let's start with in um, Japan, they have the Metabo law, which um, it's a simple, simple in theory. People have to stay below a government mandated waistline of 85 centimetres for women, 90 centimetres for men, or face the consequences. So employers and local government are responsible for the annual waste measurement check of 50 million Japanese aged between 40 and 74. In Singapore, you, re you are rewarded if your health is good and you're in a, a healthy BMI. Is this too much intervention by government or is this what we really need to crack down on the crisis? That's so interesting. So I must admit, I didn't know that. Um, is it too much intervention if we were starting to say the government or our employers had to measure our waistlines? I mean, that's quite radical. And I think given the sort of freedom yeah. that we pride ourselves on in Britain, I think that would sit very badly with the British population. Do I think it's something, a direction we might be headed in? It wouldn't surprise me. We may have no option. Um, I mean, you might remember, I, was sort of I don't know, was it? God, I'm so old now, <laughs> 30 years ago, <laughs> those TV advertisements um, to try and get people to stop smoking. You'd have the sort of lung dripping in tar. Pretty mm. shocking stuff. Pretty scary stuff. And I think we are entering the territory where we are going to have to use some pretty shocking, scary tactics. Uh, we need to wake up as a nation to what to what's happening around us and to what we're doing to our bodies. And, you know, we love our NHS. You know, it's, it's the pride of Britain. And yet we're its biggest burden by fundamentally what we're putting into our mouths. So, so I do think there is an element of responsibility there that we have as a nation as well. Um, do I think in the next 10 years, employers and the government are going to be measuring our waistlines? No. Mm. Do I think it could happen in 50 years if we don't change the direction we're going in? Very possibly. But I am quite pro-government intervention when it comes to weight, if I'm really honest. 
Um, and I feel a little bit frustrated, the, the power of the food lobby. Um, maybe it's the power of the food lobby. I think it partly is. But it does feel like the early talks of intervention, such as sugar taxes and things like that, have sort of stopped now, haven't they? The cost of living crisis has put the, the focus elsewhere and away from it. But I do think we, as a nation, we need a helping hand from our government um, to get us back to a healthier weight. Um, I think it's an uphill struggle otherwise. But that cost of living crisis just feeds into this whole weight loss problem mm-hmm. because people are looking for the cheap foods, the junk foods, the, oh, yeah. get it really quickly mm-hmm. foods because they're working hard, they don't have perhaps the time to do what our grandmothers did, which was always to do a meal from scratch, to use you know proper ingredients that didn't have lots of labels on the outside. Should we there, you know, going back to your cigarette analogy, should we put a should we be forcing companies to put messages on um, on meal uh, uh, on food products saying this will this is way past how much sugar or salt or fat you should be having for the day? Should they be forced to declare what's inside just so that people can make their own choices? but have a, you know, a labelling system that makes us more like... What I hate is when you try and work out calories and it's like, ooh, per 100 grams. Yeah. But you've got a 400-gram tub of hummus that you're about to dig into with a movie. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Also, if your eyesight's bad, you can't actually read. The, you know, it needs to be massive letters, help how many calories or how much fat in, how much salt is in a can of something. Do you remember a, couple, a year ago or something, um, restaurants started to have to put calories on their menus... And there was an absolute outcry on Instagram about how bad that was and you're out, you want to enjoy your meal and that's all about fat shaming and all the rest of it. Um, I think I think food labelling is part of the, a step in the right direction. I mean, there is to a degree some food lab- labelling already, but it's not quite, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, you can write on the side of a cigarette packet, smoking kills or whatever it says, um, you can label alcohol, a glass, you know, a bottle of wine or gin, you know, don't drink alcohol when you're pregnant or whatever it may say. But it's very difficult because we have to eat food to live. So you can't give food up in the same way as you can give a cigarette up. Mm. Um, so we can't really sort of say this meal may kill you because obviously that's not actually true. But I think I think we need to step up our game in in how we're educating people. Um with with what they're putting into their mouths and that can start with food labeling but my gut feel is it probably won't go far enough um and they need to start thinking much more seriously about the things that are really bad for us and that's the the fizzy drinks for example the uk is the biggest consumer of uh sugary fizzy drinks in the whole of europe that's got to stop that's exactly the sort of thing something like the sugar tax or whatever it's going to be maybe it's just the fizzy drinks tax um that's people People often take actions when their wallets are involved. And and I totally take on board the point that, you know, if, if you're really struggling, you know, cheap food is important to you and often is the least healthy. But there's some food that's just completely unnecessary, food and drinks. And so perhaps that's where we should start on the very unnecessary empty calories, such as the, the fizzy drinks. Yeah, and the other thing is treats just seem to be you know, common. Fa- when I was a kid, I didn't have a treat. I don't think we didn't have a treat drawer. Um, when my kids were around, we did have a treat. I, I had one. Um, and that's the problem. They become, they're not treats anymore because you have them all the time. 
we've got to stop that. Yeah. But that, that was me. I think because yes. I didn't have them, I made get my kids to have them. But I also, thought... you probably walked to school, perhaps, oh, yeah, or did, yeah. biked to school. Mm. And, you know, we're such a driven um, community. <laughs> well, yeah, we're driven in it. But we don't get out of the car. Even if we're going to the gym, chances are we drive there. <laughs> you know, my yeah. grandmother yeah, was absolutely. walking miles yeah. until she was 97 and cooking from scratch. And I think that mentality... Yeah has been a shift change. We're not scrubbing our front step and, you know, say sweat is sweat, whether you're hoovering or you're at the gym, sweat is sweat. And activity is is good mentally. It's good. It's in it's such a positive way. But I think so many people are sedentary in their jobs working from home. They're not even walking to the station to get a train. You know, we're, we have yeah. just had such a big shift change in our movement. We need to get people moving as well. Well, even the sort of just having a mobile phone, you know, you don't, if the phone rings, you don't have to walk across the sitting room or into the hallway to pick up your phone, do you? Because your phone is basically strapped to your side at all times. Um, and movement is important. When it comes to weight loss, I sometimes worry that um, people believe just by exercising more or going to the gym more, they're going to lose weight. They lose a little bit, but it's not the answer to um to real significant weight loss. It's an incredibly part, important part of a healthy lifestyle and we definitely should all be moving more and be far less sedentary. Um, but it's not going to be the answer to our, our weight problems. Um, in fact, one thing that I find very interesting is we talked about conflicting advice and education. Quite often at Jane Plan, we get people coming to us and they'll say, oh, well, my trainer at the gym said this. And quite honestly, it's often very wrong. And I do think people are being fed a plethora of confusing information about what's right and what's wrong and how it's going to work, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's very, that's one of the reasons I think sometimes people think, I want to lose weight, but I just don't know where to turn. I don't know how to do it. Fascinating. It, it, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, because I, uh, I don't want to be controversial here, but I'm going to be, you know, I was convinced I couldn't lose weight, you know going through menopause I was like oh you know it's just just can't lose it I ate too much simple as that and now I've cut my portions down yeah I lost all like 10 10 pounds and I can now eat and I might put on half if I've had a really big meal and a few but then it goes again and I but I am finding mm. as you know I, I've, st I've started your lunches which just give me that guide just to know how much I should eat at lunch because I found that the most difficult time and I mean, I don't yes, have to have absolutely. those every day, but you know, with a few vegetables, I'm stuffed when I've eaten that before I'd be looking for more toast or something. It is, it's a lot of it is mind over matter, but it's knowing how much you eat and I'm not putting the weight on again. And I don't intend to, mm. I don't think I will because it's not a diet. I think that combined yeah, with been... alcohol is a big, big thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's hardly been a podcast when I haven't mentioned Chardonnay, I should think. But I have noticed <laughs> it now. My body is so much more sensitive. Oh, yeah. I have a couple of glasses of wine. I go chipmunk. <laughs> I call myself the chipmunk on steroids. Go straight to my face. And if I have a load of... if. Jane, I was just about to say a load of bread, but that would never happen. If I was to have a tiny little bit of bread, I it goes straight to my waist because I get that bloating. So it's mm. it, it just I think if we can just have a period of time where we start becoming in tune with our bodies mm. and just concentrating or, or being mindful of the changes that happen when we eat certain foods or drink certain things, uh, there's very, very simple changes that we can all do in our daily lives 
to you know aim towards a better healthier body and just i my personal passion is the nhs does an extraordinary job but it is really really shouldering the burden of things that we should take responsibility for and i like you said i i'm not blaming anybody sometimes it is really hard and there's all sorts of circumstances and emotional reasons why it is hard to lose weight but if we can spread that message if we can ask the government to educate whether it's through shock tactics or more advertising or even reward good health like how about that for a different campaign get your insurance premiums down if you've got a better bmi maybe we can turn this on its head and reward and reinforce good behavior and stop making people feel bad if they're not if they're falling off track because for me falling off track means i stay off track But now, if I fall off track, I know my guidelines. I know what I'm supposed Mm. to eat, what I shouldn't eat. I can make choices. But um, that is through educating myself through this podcast, through talking to you every week. And, you know, it's made a big difference. I think basically we need you on telly every week, Jane, (laughs) to just tell the nation what they should be doing. (laughs) (laughs) I feel one thing I think is very interesting about weight and our relationship with the scales is the emotional relationship we have with our weight. You know, if you open your credit card statement and you've spent a bit too much because it's just been Christmas, you don't go out and spend more money. But if you stand on the scales and you see a figure come up that you're not happy with or you think isn't fair because you've had, you know, you haven't, you've been really good the week before. A lot of people's response to that, mine included, is like, oh, well, I'll just go dive headfirst into the cookie jar then. And we seem to have this extraordinary relationship with our weight that we think that our weight is sort of telling us something about ourselves, where it is just a number and it's a biological fact. That's how much you weigh. This is how much you should be weighing, what you're aiming towards. And we almost need to de-emotionalize the relationship between with, with our weight. That does feed slightly into that body positivity, body reality thing. Um, of course, we should feel good about our bodies. We absolutely should. But we also need to be conscious we need to be realistic about our bodies. Mm. And, and I think that reality check on our weight, on our fat, is is very important. And perhaps we do all need to open our eyes a little bit and understand the importance our weight has on our overall health. Um, yes, I think we can't, we can't get away from that. And I think that is a perfect note to end on, Jane. Thank you. That's great. Um, if people want to find out more about what you offer, they can find you at um, janeplan.com, can't they? There's lots of helpful advice on there. Absolutely. And, and they can follow you on Instagram as well at uh, janeplanuk, I think, isn't it? Yeah. So thank you. Fascinating. Thank you. We always love talking to you. And that's, I really do think if people can just share this podcast and uh, consider their weight and how what they can do. Even small steps make a big difference, you don't You can they? do it. You can do it. You absolutely can. Oh, gosh. There's just so much to talk about now, isn't there? I know, but I don't think we should shy away from calling it what it is, which is... I'm not going to say it. What? See? <laughs> Scaredy cat. But it, it, it's, we're not fat shaming. We're oh, it's li- not shaming. It's just fat facts. But it, what's interesting <laughs> is, did, I, did you know, <laughs> you know, I was doing my little bit of research, well, hours of research. Um, there is a, a fat gene called FTO, also known as fatso, <laughs> which is a gene which is the strongest known effect on the common types of obesity. Mm. So apparently... 
there's different variations of whatever and it can do the opposite as well so you, you can make you put on weight but also lose weight okay so i think i might have the the fat so gene <laughs> But the one, yeah. But no, but this. Well, how many people have this gene? Is it like a common gene? Apparently, quite a lot of people do. But it's the fact is, when it boils down to it, it doesn't affect you if you eat well and you exercise. So you can have this gene, but it makes no difference to you whatsoever as long as you do the right things. Yeah, it's the environment that causes half the problem. Right. So if we eat too much, hello, you put on weight. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Really? Well, that's the simple version, isn't it? But. You know, if you're depressed, if you're miserable, if you're out of work, if you're having a rough time, there's lots of reasons for eating. But I think so much of it is connected to your mind and your emotional state. Well, it is going back to my genetics. And boredom. Boredom yeah, too. But you also program, genetics also program your behaviour. Oh. So, for example, my husband, Paul, which one, and it runs in my family, like, it's quite an addictive gene in, yeah. with them. So they like a drink. They used to smoke, you know, he used to smoke, all the brothers do, you know, it's this addiction and that is the problem. I think it's your behaviour. So if you really like food, which I do, I'm not saying I've got, I haven't got the addiction. You know, you do. So you're predisposed to act in a certain way. So you might have to fight against addiction or obsession or. Or anything. Yeah. yeah. It's basically, it's. Well, you hate the gym. I mean, you don't hate the gym. You just don't. I don't like exercise. Well, some people absolutely mm. love exercise you know it, it, anything about it, it is it is it genetic does it, they're they're in us you know yeah you can't change your genes well you probably can now by why no i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> i'm not very good at this okay but what i'm trying to say is we are predisposed to is that the word predisposed predetermined we, whatever yeah but we it, it doesn't mean that we are going to necessarily be fat we, we can still make choices. Yes. Okay. And I don't think, here we go, I'm going to be really, really brave and say, I don't think we should blame. It's like point something percent have a particular gene that will make you obese. There's nothing you can do about it, but it's a tiny, tiny. So it's less than 1% Yeah. would make you, you have no choice. So you're just going to be obese. Whatever you do, however you live, your body is just going to make you yeah. fatter than you should be. Yeah. And I right. can't remember what it's called. But, but then 99% of people don't have that gene. No. We all carry this fatso gene, but it. <laughs> this, this is from the University of Utah data. I went in. I'll put it on the website because it is fascinating. I want to write a whole article because it is fascinating, and I did go down that rabbit hole, and I burrowed away. Kind of love it. Kind of love it. Yeah. Perfect name for it. <laughs> Unless I've just found some website that's completely rubbish. Is it April Fools yet? No, too it's early. It's not. It's the it's Genetic Science Learning Centre. Oh, well, yeah, that sounds like yeah. it's pretty yeah. kosher So what stuff. we're all down to, I'm trying to say, is that, yeah, I think in the environment is affected, and that's what we were talking about with Jane, you know, it, it's our environment, we're everywhere around us, people are telling us to eat more, you know, drive-through just sums it up, drive-through to get food. Yeah, we don't even walk. get out of the car to go and pay for it. No, exactly. Well, I mean, I, I think it falls to everybody and governments, really, to help push forward the narrative on this, because clearly there's a crisis. Clearly it costs the country, the NHS, public health, vast amounts of money. And I think we should all be doing our best. I mean, I want to be around for my grandchildren. I'd really like to be around for my great-grandchildren. And chances are, with our life expectancy nearer 100, I know I don't want to be doubled over with a walking frame 
uh, because I have put too much stress on my joints and my spine in midlife. Now, I think, is the time that we're waking up to what we can do to prepare ourselves for the next stage of our life. And by stopping pre-diabetes and diabetes, um, what is it called? Two. Diabetes two is the one that you, yeah. you get, poss- but, not always from eating too much, but generally that's the one that's... that's... So if we can try and pre- educate ourselves and be aware and prevent um, getting to that stage... It's a good thing for everybody. It's a good thing for the country. It's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for our kids and our grandchildren because we'll be around longer and in um, won't need to be looked after quite as much and we won't be having to inject ourselves with medicines and things like that or costing the country medicines. I keep saying costing the country, but it is. We have an NHS yeah. and we're lucky to have that, but we, we all need to take steps to look after ourselves. And this is not blame. This is not the blame game whatsoever. It's more about... Uh, wising up it's wising up and it's, it's never too late check. i think i think it's not too late to do it i mean we've both proved it you know i'm 60 this year <laughs> and i've lost the weight and i feel better for it i have my moments when i want to stuff my face but generally and then i feel guilty about doing it no and no, i don't feel guilty i feel bad mm. i think you know but it's not too late to make change and you know me i mean for the last few years <laughs> this I don't think there's a diet in the world that I probably have not tried at some stage or another. And I've, you know, tried juicing and... Cabbage. Cabbage soup. You name it. If it's been a trend, I've probably tried it. But the only thing, strange this, the only thing that works is eating less. Yeah. (laughs) Portion control and eating less. And actually, stepping on the scales every day helps too because then I don't leave it so long. I stop being in denial about, oh, I know that was a, you know, big big night at the buffet um so if i put on half a pound or a pound you can adjust right you can just rebalance a little bit and have less the next two or three days it's not about guilt don't have guilt food is such a pleasure i mean it should be that's that is the big thing i'm definitely i love going out for dinner eating a lot but it's choosing also you can eat a lot of food i mean you can't eat every day loads of food we can have a really good meal out Eat a lot, but then, yeah, be more sensible the next few Maybe, days. Maybe, you know, a 300-calorie soup the next day and some fresh vegetables and stuff. Yeah. And in the words of Oprah, I love bread. <laughs> She's so well-known for saying that. Yeah, but that's the problem. If it doesn't agree with her, though, you, perhaps you have to think not to have it. I don't I love mean, bread, quite, I love um, bread you know, but I don't like the after effects. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, you know, my thoughts on that, you know, it's all very well saying that. But, you know, if it's going to make you overweight and feel rubbish... Don't oh, eat it. That is so terribly grown up and mature, isn't it? Well, I, no, no, I am very mature now. <laughs> that is the hindsight of a grown up mature woman. And I wish I could always be good like that. Oh, and I'm not. You know that. But it, but it's just, I think, yeah, we've just got to look after ourselves. Mm. Well, mm. look after yourselves, listeners. And if you yeah. want to find out more, visit our midlife library at... TwoWomenChatting.com. We've got loads of stuff on there. Um, and we've still got the offer with Jane Plan um, for TWC50. If you want to start um, weight management with them, that's for £50 off. It's worked for me. It's worked for Liz. Um, I mean, I wasn't on it originally. As you know, I just was sensible eating. But it was the bit where I struggled. To be honest, sometimes I'm just a bit bored. What shall I have at lunchtime? And having that in the cupboard... I just have one of those. It's 150 calories. I put a bit of tomato cucumber on the top. I'm stuffed. Bob's your uncle. Who is Bob? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's all from us. Chat soon. 